Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to AM Live. Hope your weekend is going well under these uh, scary circumstances of war in Ukraine and heightening rhetoric, heightening atrocities and heightening rhetoric. Let me play for you what Zelensky said just this morning on Face the Nation. Is this genocide? Indeed, this is genocide. The elimination of the whole nation and the people. We are the citizens of Ukraine. We have more than 100 nationalities. This is about the destruction and extermination of all these nationalities. We are the citizens of Ukraine, and we don't want to be subdued to the policy of Russian Federation. This is the reason we are being... Um, destroyed. So that's Zelensky saying, declaring today on CBS that what Russia is doing inside Ukraine is genocide. And he's saying this with, I think, the approval of media outlets like CBS, where he said this. And now we're seeing increased calls from these outlets for direct military intervention. Ali Belshi, who is a host on MSNBC, I had an exchange with him on Twitter last night where he talked about how the U.S. now needs to intervene more because this is what he called a never-again moment. And I asked him what he meant by that, and he said direct military intervention. And today on his show, this is what one of his guests said. I'm saying I served for 25 years. I served to protect the innocent. We are the leaders of the free world. So, yes, and my wife still serves. I don't speak for her, but I'm ready to commit at this moment, unlike I was before this day, to put people in direct contact with Russia to stop Russia. Call it peacekeeping. Call it what you will. We have to do more than provide weapons. And by we, I mean the United States. Yes, we're going to do it as a coalition with lots of other people. But we are the example. So put boots on the ground. Send weapons directly at Russia. This is a massacre. This is a special kind of evil. And I think you can find many more examples of that, especially on MSNBC, where Alexander Vindman, if you recall him, he was the hero of Trump's first impeachment. He was basically today downplaying the prospect of nuclear war if the U.S. does what all of these voices are advocating, which is engage Russia directly militarily. Vindman was saying that Russia would be unlikely use nuclear weapons, and that's why he supports it. So everyone, everyone just sort of casually advocating policies that could risk nuclear war, but very confident that nuclear war wouldn't break out. And that's why they feel willing to risk it. Well, I certainly don't feel the same way. And we can talk more about that. And um, so with these calls for in, uh, increased U.S. military intervention and claims of genocide, come new allegations of Russian atrocities. The major one now is in the town of uh, Bucha. And I am skeptical of what we are hearing. Uh, not that Russia is not capable of committing atrocities, and they have, but basically the timeline of what happened here is essentially this. On March 30th, and this is from the Moon of Alabama blog, on March 30th, the Russian troops leave the town. On March 31st, the mayor of Bucha announced that the town is liberated. It doesn't mention any atrocities at all. Right after that, uh, members of the Azov Battalion come into the town, and the next day, uh, today, April 3rd, that's when the Ukrainian Defense Ministry all of a sudden publishes these videos that, we, that we've all seen today of uh, Ukrainian forces driving down a road and seeing uh, dead corpses, 
people with their arms tied behind their back. And Ukraine claims that these are Ukrainian prisoners of war. And also even young teenagers just massacred by Russian forces. Uh, that timeline in between the amount of days that the town was freed of Russia and when we get this video saying that there's uh, all these victims of a Russian atrocity, it just doesn't make sense to me. I'm, I'm not denying it. I'm, I'm not saying that this definitely means it didn't happen. It's quite possible. But especially at a time of war, especially at a time when all sides are putting up propaganda to, to justify their aims, it requires caution. And even the, even the New York Times today acknowledged that they could not independently corroborate what the Ukrainian government was saying. And that's the responsible way to report this stuff. And that's should be the way forward, especially given the escalating calls for military intervention. Now, one thing came out this weekend that I thought was really interesting, and it speaks to how all this could have been avoided. And it was reported by the Wall Street Journal, a very, very long piece uh, about how about the lead up to this war. And it's mainly critical of, of Russia and blames them for this invasion. But at the very end of the article is buried, I think, a pretty important detail that I hadn't heard before. And I'll read it to you. It says this. It's talking about the German Chancellor Schultz and his last minute efforts to avoid war. So it says this. Schultz made one last push for a settlement between Moscow and Kiev. He told Zelensky in Munich on February 19th. So that's just days before Russia invaded that Ukraine should renounce its NATO aspirations and declare neutrality as part of a wider European security deal between the West and Russia. The pact will be signed by Mr. Putin and Mr. Biden who would jointly guarantee Ukraine's security. So here you have a last-minute proposal put up by Germany for Ukraine to declare neutrality, just renounce its NATO aspirations, and in return it will receive uh, a security deal with the signature of both Putin and Biden. And we know, as we discussed last week, that Zelensky has already admitted that he was told anyway that Ukraine would not be joining NATO. He said this on CNN, which I'll play for you, Right now, just to refresh your memory for anybody and or for anybody who missed it. This is what Zelensky said. He admitted to CNN two weeks ago that he was told by NATO that Ukraine will never join, but that the doors will remain open. This is what Zelensky said. Requested them personally to, to say directly that we are going to accept into NATO or NATO in a year or two or five. To say it directly and clearly or just say no. And the response was very clear. You are not going to be a NATO EU member, but publicly the doors will remain open. NATO EU member, but publicly not going to be a NATO EU member, but publicly the doors will remain open. So I played that back a couple of times because I, I want to make sure everyone understands that part. He said that he was told by NATO, you're not going to become a NATO member, but publicly the doors will remain open. So essentially Zelensky was told, that you're never going to join NATO, but we're going to leave the door, the, the door open publicly. And why? Because they don't want to give Russia a victory or even in a more sinister interpretation, they wanted to bait Russia uh, by using Ukraine's potential membership to NATO. So Zelensky knew that and played along with it. And now we get this reporting from the Wall Street Journal that there was this offer from or this proposal from Germany uh, to Zelensky that Ukraine renounced NATO membership, something it was told anyway it wasn't going to get and declare neutrality. And the Wall Street Journal reports that Zelensky said no. Uh, the Wall Street Journal says this. Mr. Zelensky said Putin couldn't be trusted to uphold such an agreement and that most Ukrainians wanted to join NATO. His answer left German officials worried that the chances of peace were fading. And indeed, just a few days later, Russia invaded. After, by the way, the Wall Street Journal also, also reports that Putin agreed to a summit with Biden 
and then backed out and then decided to invade. I wish, of course, that Putin hadn't done that. Why not exhaust all diplomatic options and meet with Biden that could have yielded something? But I also think Zelensky has a lot of explaining to do here when he was offered this proposal from Germany to renounce NATO, something he was told wouldn't happen anyway, and he declined it. And a few days later, you had uh, the the Russian invasion. And now we're dealing with consequences, not just to Ukrainians who are dying as a result of this war, but Europe too. And let me read you something from the New York Times. This is from yesterday, an article called uh, Putin Reminds the World He Still Wields a Powerful Economic Weapon. And the article is basically about how for all the promises that Russia's economy would collapse, that actually hasn't happened. The ruble is approaching a level uh, that it was at pre-invasion, and Europe is still buying Russian energy. And that's because they need it. And this article talks about the prospect of what happens if Europeans are able to you know, follow U.S. orders and completely block Russian energy. This is what New York Times says, quote, Europeans may be poorer and colder, at least for a few years, because of spiraling prices and dampened economic activity caused by, shortage, caused by energy shortages. So this essentially is what the U.S. policy is, is forcing Europe into, a situation in which Europeans are, quote, poorer and colder. And for what? For the sake of uh, preserving the theoretical possibility of Ukraine's NATO ascension, even though everyone involved recognizes it won't happen anyway. It just seems so needlessly catastrophic. And it's the people of all these countries, foremost Ukraine, but other places too, that will bear the burden. And on this point, just today, according to uh, BNO, BNO News, German food retailers to raise prices by 20 to 50% on Monday. And so, of course, who do, who do all these policies hurt? It's, the, it's working people of the countries that are, by the way, meanwhile, footing the bill for all the weapons that are flooding into Ukraine to keep this war going. So it's just one more aspect of this disaster made all the more dangerous given the increasing calls for U.S. intervention. So with that, that's my opening rant. And let's take some calls. And no war if you're there. To speak, you have to unmute yourself by hitting the microphone in the bottom right. Button in the, in the bottom. Yeah, there you go. Hey, Aaron, I didn't even think I called in. I'm sorry. I didn't really intend to, but what was that clip you played at the beginning of the guy that was saying we should put boots on the ground? Who was that? His name is... Let me find it. His name is... Uh, I will find it for you. It's, Are you going to uh, have it on tomorrow morning, too? It's a oh, perfect hey. clip for tomorrow on... Uh, right, here we go. Uh, his name is... His name is uh, a retired Major John Spencer with something called the Madison Policy Forum. I've heard of him. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Hey, do you have any questions for me? Uh, I, I don't have any questions for you, but I <laughs> but I appreciate the offer. Thank you. All right. All right. Thanks, Eric. Dada, thank you. Bye. And Dada, if you're there, to speak, you have to hit the microphone button in the bottom right. And Dada, if you're not there, We'll move on to John. And let me just take this opportunity to tell everyone. So when you come in, there's a microphone button in the bottom right. And by default, you are muted. So to unmute yourself, you have to hit that micro that microphone button for us to hear you. So everyone who's in the queue, please keep that in mind when your turn 
is up. And uh, John, it's yours right now, if you're there. And if you're not, we will move on to Eric. And if uh, you come in and we don't get to you because your microphone situation isn't working, just come back in line and we'll let you back into the queue so you can speak then. All right. John, doesn't sound like you're there. Eric, you are up. It's AM Live! <laughs> That's right. And <laughs> just one second. A very helpful comment here from uh, WCP2024, who says, you also have to give your phone permissions to use your microphone. That's right. So make sure everybody, if you want to speak, you've given your phone the permission to use your mic when you're in this app, which should be an automatic uh, option available to you when you when you're trying to speak. All right. Go ahead, Eric. With Aaron Mate, <laughs> musical guest. Who would the musical guest be? Uh, well, some, some 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 band that's apocalyptic. So, whatever music you want to listen to when, when the apocalypse comes, Arrested I think that's development. There you go. There you go. That's a musical guest. Um, you know, I hate to ask this because I'm already starting off a little silly, but. Did you give your opinion on the Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith thing? Because I was thinking, okay, Will Smith is like Vladimir Putin, okay? And then Jada Smith is the Donbass. But um, no, I don't know. But did you think that there was anything useful to learn from that exchange? Because it does seem to be, I do think in America, we have an aggressive culture. And we reserve for ourselves the right to use violence. And so when people say that that type of thing isn't serious, I think, I no, this is the zeitgeist. This is somebody who thinks he has the right to defend the honor of somebody else with violence, and they reserve for themselves the right to use that exceptional violence. And I'm like, well, that's just our foreign policy, isn't it? I get the analogy, and I've heard it made. I, To me, this is just more just simple human. You know, obviously, Will Smith heard his wife being called, being, being insulted, and that hit a nerve, and it, it triggered him. And I, look, I'm going to try to keep all my platforms slap free because there's plenty of content about that elsewhere. But I'll just say that I was sad. I was just sad to watch. I was sad for everybody. And uh, I think um, Will Smith has apologized and you can totally criticize the way he handled everything and what he did and his speech afterwards, which was pretty crazy. But, you know, people, people have faults, people are troubled. And I think I tend to err on giving people like that the benefit of the doubt, especially after, after they've apologized, which admittedly took too long, but you know, it's also a sensitive situation. That, that's his wife that was insulted. So that's all I'll say about it. I have compassion for everybody, and we'll keep the rest of this call today slap-free. Thank you very much. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. All right. Ritvik, you are up. Hello? Hi there. Can you hear me? We can, yeah. Okay. So I have followed your coverage of the war in Ukraine, and for someone trying to understand Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and its context, I ha- is it not important to spend as much time analyzing Putin's government, its aims, and listening to voices of dissent in Russia as USA's and NATO's role in catalyzing the conflict? So that's my question. Sure, it's important. I spend my time focusing on the U.S. role because that's where I live. That's what I pay taxes to. And that's what I think is a major responsibility for this conflict. And that's what I can impact. I can't really impact what Russia's government does. I don't live there. And also, I'm just not very familiar with Russia's internal politics. But certainly, yeah, I think listening to the voices of dissent inside Russia is totally important. 
Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Rebecca. All right. Ksenia. And Ksenia, Hi. if you're there. Hi. There you go. Hi. Sorry. It took me a second to figure out the mic. No worries. Uh, so, hi, Aaron. Uh, firstly, I would like to thank you for bringing more light to the situation because I've been following you for quite a while and I really appreciate all your efforts. And um, I have a couple of questions. So this situation is really difficult for me now, especially that my I'm half Ukrainian, half Russian. So I have a question. What would have been if war wouldn't break out, would NATO eventually surround Russia by its military bases and knowing the aggressive nature of NATO, would it really um, cause a problem in the long run? And uh, how could this conflict could have been avoided? Because um, taking into the account the fact that Russia had a defensive position over the past centuries in general, and its hand of friendship, you know, has been slapped continuously because I remember Putin was offering if Russia could join NATO and um, they were saying like, oh, no, that's not going to happen, obviously, uh, because then NATO wouldn't need to exist if Russia would join it. And secondly, he was offering a lot of... Um, Things like uh, joining the free trade Lisbon to Vladivostok and things like that. So my question is remains the same. What would have been if uh, they would not um, go with a war into Ukraine? How could it play out? How could it have been avoided? How could it, uh, yes, avoided and what would have happened if uh, Ukraine would join NATO? in the long run for Russia? Well, if Ukraine would have joined NATO, then as Bill Burns, who's the current director of the CIA now, uh, and previously was the U.S. ambassador to Russia under Bush, as he warned, there would have been war. I mean, Russia has made clear for a long time that Ukraine's membership in NATO is existential and that Russia would take military steps to prevent it. So if this quest to bring Ukraine into NATO kept up, then there would have been a war eventually. And I guess Putin and his cabinet decided this was the time now to, to put a stop to it now. Now, I don't think NATO was the only factor here. There's, there's, all, there's also the fact that there's been a war going on in the Donbass for eight years. Oh, yes. I'm aware of that. Yeah. I've seen a lot of evidence which has been really cruel because... Um, you know, I've seen the videos like there were veterans of the Second World War, really old people, maybe like 90 years old or more. They were publicly humiliated for speaking Russian. So I know it has been a really, really big problem and a bit of a genocide there. So if you Google the Alley of Angels, you can see how many dead kids were around Lugansk and Donetsk. Um, I agree with you on that. Yeah, I mean, I don't use the term genocide. I think that's too too harsh. Uh, me, but, li- yeah, yeah. You but, know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. But, but certainly the suffering of the people in the in that region is is real. It's been totally ignored. To the extent the US talks about it, it's been to encourage war. There's um there's this clip of in twenty sixteen of Lindsey Graham and John McCain going to the front lines in Ukraine and and meeting with a bunch of Ukrainian soldiers and saying that 20, 20, 2017 will be the year of offense and Russia will pay mm-hmm. a heavier price. And 
what they mean is that not Russia will pay a heavier price, but the civilians in uh, Donetsk and, and Luhansk will pay a heavier price uh, because they're the ones rebelling who didn't want to live under a U.S.-backed coup regime. So, and that's the part we're all just supposed to ignore that this is that this war actually didn't start with Russia's invasion. And even so, how could this have been avoided? Well, what if Zelensky had just accepted neutrality? as was on the table up until the very last minute and accepted mm-hmm. Minsk and accepted Minsk because the Minsk Accords, which were reached in 2015. Yeah. And by the way, the, the reason the Minsk Accords happened is because I, I think a major part of it was that Obama was, did not want to pursue the policy that, that now Biden is pursuing. And before him, Trump was basically pushed into pursuing, which is fueling the proxy war. Obama did not want to send all these weapons to Ukraine because he didn't, as he explained, didn't want them to fall in the hands of Nazis and he also knew accurately that no matter what, Russia will always have escalatory dominance. So whatever the U.S. does, Russia will always be able to surpass it militarily. So just to send more weapons in, similar to Syria, it's just a recipe for prolonged conflict. So Obama, to his great credit, and there's not very much to credit him for, but that this is one of them, held back on sending all these weapons. And that forced Kiev to make a peace deal with the rebels in 2015. And basically what happened was, I think Washington and the far right in Ukraine essentially waited out Obama, got waited him for, to leave office. And then when Trump came mm-hmm. in office, he faced heavy lobbying from John McCain and Lindsey Graham, and also the pressure of being called a Russian agent. And he basically caved and he sent those weapons that Obama wouldn't send. And that fueled more war, just as Lindsey Graham and John McCain promised. So and when Zelensky was elected on a platform of peace, and, and maybe you have thoughts on this, Akasenia, like what, what that moment was like when Zelensky was elected, there was a lot of optimism that he was going to finally end the war. That was like one of his key campaign platforms. But what happened? The far right in Ukraine threatened him with violence. They threatened to essentially kill him, overthrow his government. And nobody in Washington was there to, to support him. So he was left to deal with this, you know, threats from the far right. He backed down pretty quickly. And now here we are. But when I watched a few um, videos, like I found on YouTube, I think Biden in back in maybe 17 or straight after Madan, who, who wasn't the president yet, he was mentioning like, your fight is our fight. And I saw a few evidences that they were actually really encouraging him to fight. This is my impression. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if Biden said that. I mean, he, after all, became the most influential political U.S. political figure inside Ukraine after the 2014 coup. Uh, he, you know, as evidenced by the fact that his son Hunter was quickly gifted a lucrative Burisma seat. So I wouldn't be surprised if Biden was saying that. Let me play, though. I don't have that clip, but I do have the clip of John McCain and Lindsey Graham, which I'll play for people who haven't heard it. Mm-hmm. All right. 2017 will be the year of offense. All of us will go back to Washington and we will push the case against Russia. Enough of a Russian aggression. So that's Lindsey Graham, who for some reason fashions himself as a battlefield commander in Ukraine promising that Russia will pay a heavier price with, of course, Ukrainians used as the tip of the spear. And that's the U.S. policy is using Ukraine as cannon fodder against Russia. And let me say one more thing, too. This is just this goes beyond Ukraine, because in 
you know, alongside this, you know, multi-year effort to bring Ukraine into the U.S. orbit, to bring it into NATO. And of course, Biden made this a lot worse when Ukraine and the U.S. under Biden signed all these agreements to incorporate uh, Ukraine into the U.S., the U.S. defensive strategic framework. And these agreements effectively enshrined the goal of bringing Ukraine into NATO and preparing Ukraine militarily to be ready to be in NATO. And that's why I think Ukraine has actually done such a surprisingly good job in this war is because they've been given a lot of NATO equipment and gotten some really good training. And so they've done really well in in resisting Russia. Um, so there's in concert with, with all of this, or at the same time, there's also this, this, this simultaneous thing where the U.S. has been ripping up arms control treaties that prevent a nuclear holocaust. This began really under Bush in 2003 when John Bolton ripped up the anti-ballistic missile treaty. And that undercut the basis for global stability, which is mutually assured destruction, by um, allowing the U.S. to build these anti-ballistic missile sites that undercuts the basis for global stability because it means that the U.S. can build these missiles that can shoot down uh, incoming uh, Russian uh, weapons. And the inability to do that is what actually kept the peace up until that point. So the U.S. builds these missile sites in Poland and Romania, and they say that this is being done so that, that the U.S. can defend Europe against Iran, which is such a joke because Iranian missiles, if they ever were crazy enough to fire them at Europe, they can't even reach Europe. So it was a complete lie. And the aim of these sites was to actually point weapons at Russia. And then you have under Trump, he rips up, again, John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, this is their doing. Uh, Trump uh, rips up the INF Treaty, which had eliminated an entire class of nuclear weapons. So you have not just Ukraine be trying, you know, being pushed into NATO, but also the U.S. tearing up arms control treaties that had kept the peace. And so that's the context that I think has played into this. And what I suspect Russia is doing in invading Ukraine is not just trying to get Ukraine to be uh, to be neutral, but also hoping to use its occupation of Ukraine as leverage to get the U.S. to re-enter the arms control treaties that it's abandoned. Oh, that does make a lot of sense. So basically, NATO is a real threat for Russia, and it's valid. Their concern is really valid. But unfortunately, it's not covered in the media here. No, certainly not. Certainly not. Um, that makes a lot of sense. I always knew that. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Ksenia. Thank you. All right, Al. Hello, did you hear me? Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me. So um, I'm a bit of a dissenting voice here. So can I can I mention so or, or ask some questions? Yeah. So I, just to answer to Ksenia, I don't think NATO is, should be a threat to Russia. Um, and I, I think that's part of the problem right now. And I think that hopefully that's going to be part of the resolution of the problem. But um, just a couple of things. I looked at your, uh, the post about uh, Moon of Alabama and the links for ASOP, it doesn't work. Um, so you, there's a reference about the ASOP coming into that site. Uh, when you click on that link, it's a New York Times article. There's no mention of ASOP. Okay. So I, I would be very careful in these, uh, this situation, especially you as a journalist, not to okay. post, uh, I can tell you for a fact. I know for a fact that Azov was in. Well, can you post that uh, that sure. link because sure. it's not, sure. it's not part of that one of Alabama. Uh, okay, okay. Uh, that's you know it's you know you're, you're a journalist, so so that's uh, one thing. I um, also um, a couple of things. There's I there's a there's some posts uh, on like uh, about NATO. 
So uh, Putin talks about NATO and being a threat and all that, and about the broken agreement. So there's some recent declassified uh, U.S. Uh, information that were uh, it's in a book. I haven't read it, but there's a there's a link about that. Uh, there's a video. There's a professor from Stanford that wrote about this, and there's also a professor from Boston. And uh, and basically, I think there's it's it's it, there was a diplomatic talk about it. Uh, it was never there was no treaty that uh, said that oh NATO should not be expanded in in exchange. Uh, you know, East Germany is going to join Germany. That was just, uh, you know, Togbeton diplomats. It was never into a treaty. So I think it's really important to to state the facts and not, or or even it's disputed amongst historians right now. So I think there's a lot of nuances. And finally, you know, this isn't supposed to be a talk about uh, um, uh, sort of, a, you know, how Ukraine, about having a neutrality and, and the discussion. So I think the currently the, the the diplomatic discussions between Russia and Ukraine are extremely important. I think that all of us need to pray that this goes well. Um, there, the Ukrainians are not asking for NATO right now, but they're asking for a security to guarantee actually that goes even beyond NATO, um, which would include even the Chinese, and maybe they're going to be the beneficiary of all this. Um, and uh, and and but I just want to say that two weeks ago. Um, you were on the Chinese network and you were saying that there was nothing to discuss. That's quote unquote what you said. And there was a, a woman with a baby uh, in a cellar in Kiev and you were telling her basically there's nothing to discuss. But I think there is something to discuss. And I do agree. However, I do agree with you that um, we shouldn't be interfering with those discussions. I think the United States has been saying very negative and pushing for, you know, aggression and all that. I, we should just leave the Ukrainians, let them discuss it out with the Russians, um, what, whatever it is, and not support Putin, you know, uh, either, you know. And I think, finally, as a journalist, you need to find out about Putin. You have to read about him. You need to do this because you're just presenting one part of the story. You're saying that you're, you're basically saying that Putin is a, is a, is a, a, a you know, a victim in all okay. this. All right, let, let me stop you there. No, no, okay, all right. No, no, no. That's, no, no. I've heard enough. I've heard enough. Listen, you you have a tendency to make a, a series of sweeping claims and characterize my views in ways that I've never characterized them. So I've never called Putin a victim. And by the way, let me just correct you on one thing. Okay. So you started off by saying that the, the Moon of Alabama link that I posted about what happened in Bucha didn't mention Azov. So I clicked it, and it does. It says, so it goes to New York Times, as you said. And it's a picture of Azov Battalion soldiers. And it says this, Ukrainian soldiers from the Azov Battalion in Bucha, where footage showed scattered bodies and widespread destruction on the streets on Saturday. So that's just a correction to your okay. first All point. Right. On your second point, your second point was what? That, that, the whole, that the historical record doesn't show that Russia was given a clear promise that NATO wouldn't expand east? Is that what you're trying to say? Yes. Okay. Well, I'll let historians be the judge of that. To me, the, the record is overwhelmingly clear. And recently there was just new documents declassified and they're available at the National Security Archive showing yes. again that there was meetings and everybody involved was very clear that this that the pledge to, to the Soviet Union was that NATO would not expand one inch to the east. Now, where I think uh, Gorbachev made a huge mistake was not getting this in writing. So you can say it's, you know, it's like tough luck. It's his fault for not getting that in writing. But in terms right. of what was promised, what was the spirit of those agreements? To me, 
the consensus, as the documents show, is overwhelming that NATO that NATO expansion to the east was taken off of the table. And finally, on your last point, I've never said that Putin is a victim. I've repeatedly said I don't support his invasion. I think it's criminal and illegal. I don't think he exhausted all diplomatic all diplomatic options. I've talked about other options I think he should have pursued. For example, going to the UN, trying to get a peacekeeping mission in the Donbass, if that was his purported concern, uh, making the case publicly, making this case to the American people, saying, "Look, this is this is the situation I'm in. These are my concerns about NATO expansion. This is my, these are my concerns about that your government is not pressuring its client in Kiev to implement Minsk." He could have done all these things, so he did not, in my opinion, exhaust all the options he had. He could have used his pipelines as leverage to say, "All right, if, unless we get movement." on Minsk and neutrality, I'm going to have to cut off energy supplies to Europe, as he's basically doing now uh, when it comes to asking people to pay for Russian gas and rubles. So I've never said he's a victim. I do think, though, what I have said, though, is that the war didn't start when he invaded and that Russia's security concerns are legitimate. And that latter point is not controversial. It was once accepted wisdom, including from Bill Burns, who's now Biden's director of the CIA. There's I mentioned when he was the ambassador to Russia, he wrote that memo that we know from WikiLeaks saying that for all of Russia, you know, Ukraine and NATO is a red line and it's a legitimate security concern. Those are his words. So that's where I'm coming from. And no, you're, I fine, to, you're, you're fine to interpret it. No, but can I make want, but that's, I, that's actually where I stand. No, I, I agree. And I, and you, you, you're pretty consistent, but it's a multipolar world and there's a hundred million people in Eastern Europe that disagree with you, they also have a security concern. And it's different from the West, and it's different from Russia. And I think that has to be acknowledged. And it's not being acknowledged. It's, you know, we're back to Yalta, where the U.S. decides with Russia, the rest of the world. There's 100 million people in the middle. And, and it's that, multi, that bipolar world is over. And I think the concerns of, of this middle part of the year, uh, sort of eastern part of Europe, has to be taken into account, and it's not being counted. And so that's how, that's going to be my plug. But I appreciate you taking my call. Okay, thanks for the call. Okay, bye. And now joining us from Ukraine is Serge. Hello, Serge. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Serge. Hi, everyone. How, are how are you? Oh, we're doing fine. Thanks. Still everything okay in Zaporozhye. Uh, so, yeah, I just wanted to say something to the previous caller, Al. Uh, he says that we're not living in a bipolar world. Uh, I think he's mistaken because we've always, well, for the last century, we've been living in a bipolar world, uh, which is divided between the West and the East, basically the US and the Russia. And you can think that Europe is really making some calls here, but basically Europe is uh, obligated to do whatever the U.S. says. Now, the the U.S. says now that they shouldn't buy Russia's gas and oil. And we're now hearing from people from Germany and Italy that their factories and uh, basically all the heavy industry is under great scrutiny because they don't have enough oil and gas to uh, function. While the U.S. at the same time, we're hearing now that they've actually increased uh, the 
import of oil from Russia. So the only thing I think is going on right now is that we have this polar change and maybe uh, it will shift from the US to somewhere else. But we will still live in a multipolar world and probably probably bipolar. But yeah, that's regarding that, sorry. So uh, in the beginning, you talked about, uh, you said Boca. I'm afraid it's pronounced Bucha. And I think... I'm sorry, I knew I was getting it wrong as I was saying it, but I... I, I anyway, so thank you for the correction. Yeah, that's totally fine. I just think that uh, by mispronouncing it, you, you're missing one very crucial point, is that, you know, we're getting such huge news, which some people are now saying, like, it's Serebrenica from... Uh, uh, from like Bosnia, it's yeah. A, yeah, yeah, from Bosnia. Like, it's the new Serebrenica, and, uh, which was famously the main reason behind NATO actually taking some action in the Bosnian war and uh, using carpet bombing in order to stop the war. Uh, and we are now being told that it's like this new Serebrenica, which is this massacre of Ukrainians in Bucha, and which sounds very similar to the word butcher, which Biden, of course, used to describe Putin. So now I've heard that many Western media are now using this, like to say that Russian butchers are butchering Ukrainians in Bucha. So it's like this buzzword now. And I just think that maybe it's one of the, one of, one of the many now false flags which are, with which they're trying to basically move all of the thousands of NATO troops which are now gathered uh, at the western border of Ukraine, make them basically move to Ukraine as the peacekeeping troops to stop Russia or something like that. And as for Bucha, yeah, I agree with you that the timeline is very strange and seem off. Uh, basically, Bucha was closed down after March 30 or 31. And after that, we didn't hear anything from there. And now, April 3rd, we are hearing that there are multiple bodies on streets. But, you know, Bucha's mayor said that everything was okay and we are free from the occupants but now we're hearing that actually everything was very bad and there were multiple dead bodies all over the city but another crucial point that many analysts have now pointed out is that many of those bodies uh, have white arm bandages uh, which uh, signify that these people that were killed were actually allies to the Russian troops, um, which are now can probably be called like collaborators with the, the Russians. So that may be the reason why they were killed by the Ukrainian forces, which came in after the Russian forces decided to leave the town. And there were, there were, there's also footage of people being tied down in some basement um, 
they were probably used to get information about Russian troops or something like that. But in all of those footages, you can see that people have white bandages on their arms. And um, as we know, all the Ukrainian forces and all the Ukrainian territorial guards use either blue or yellow arm bandages to signify their allegiance. Mm. So those people with white bandages are definitely, um, would have been definitely considered enemies by the Ukrainian forces. And I think people will start talking about this sooner or later, but so just so we know, uh, all the Russian speaking and all the Ukrainian speaking audiences are now starting to uh, notice such things. There is all. Yeah. Sorry. No, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, there's also another footage where the territorial guard of Bucha is filming, uh, you know, all the devastation that happened in the city. And it was posted by, by one of the prominent uh, territorial guards of Bucha, whose name actually is actually escaping me, but I'll try to look it up. But anyway, in this footage, you can hear one of uh, one of his guards, one of his troops from his team, actually asking him, like, uh, should we, I, I guess, uh, then the Ukrainian troops came into Bucha, uh, there was a curfew going on, so uh, no civilians should be walking on the street. And you can hear one of the team members asking the leader of the Territorial Guard if they should shoot anyone who is not wearing the blue arm bandage. So they've basically admitted to shooting civilians, civilians themselves. Wow, well, that's, um, that's all really helpful to know. And again, look, anything can happen in war. Uh, and so that's why I just stressed it's just important not to take anything on faith and all allegations, no matter which side they come from, have to be verified. And again, the, what we're seeing again today, as it happens so often, is one side, the Ukrainian government side makes a claim, and it's just accepted on faith, even though it can't be independently verified. And just the fact that the, that the Azov Battalion is there and involved, that to me raises automatic red flags. But, um, you know, I, uh, I, I hope more, I, I hope more evidence comes out. I'm, I'm sure it will, because it's happened a lot already where, you know, we get these explosive claims in this war and then they turn out to be false. So we'll see. And Serge, I really appreciate you as always calling in to share with us your, your knowledge. So thank you. Yeah. yeah thank you. We'll see. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Talk to you soon. Bye. Brian, you're up. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you, Serge, for speaking as well. Because that was very interesting. Uh, the one thing that I struggle with, and Aaron, I followed a lot of your coverage, uh, is things like uh, that Russia has been holding back or they've been sort of strategically not as aggressive as they, they could be. That seems to be sort of the most... Uh, opposed idea in in the, the media in a certain way um and uh so i'm curious as to your thoughts on uh that strategy if do you think that 
the people who do say that Russia's been holding back or or not as brutal as they could be hypothetically are underselling it in some way? Do you think there's sort of an in between the two, or just kind of what, what are your thoughts on um, the scale that they are attacking that, that rather than what they could be? That's a great question. And it's hard because we're not there to find the appropriate language to speak about what's going on. And it's hard when you say that, you know, and I've said this, that Russia has not used its full military power. I understand it sounds insensitive when people are being bombed, millions of refugees, civilian buildings destroyed. I get it. But it has been corroborated by now by multiple uh, news outlets. I have a thread where I collect all the statements from news outlets, Financial Times, Washington Post, to talk about actually how Russia has not used anywhere near its full military power, that initially it primarily focused on military sites. Uh, that And there was recently this article in Newsweek by William Arkin, where he spoke to an analyst at the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is the Pentagon's intelligence wing, and also to two retired Air Force officers who have access to the intelligence. And all of them said the same thing. And so does Scott Ritter, that Russia, compared to what was initially expected, especially, has overall been restrained. And that's why it has not tried to take Kiev. And there's been this widespread impression that it wanted to take Kiev, but it didn't. And because it didn't, because of the fierce Ukrainian resistance. But I don't see any evidence that, especially given that Russia's battle plan and its aims were never announced. So how do we know that they wanted to take the capital? And if they wanted to take the capital, it strikes me that they would have bombed more places there, like bombed the presidential uh, uh, residences, for example, and the government buildings. So I... um I can only go by what's publicly available. But uh, another complicating problem, and this came out in the Washington Post recently, there was an article in which the Washington Post also acknowledged that the Ukrainian strategy has basically to place military targets everywhere in Ukrainian neighborhoods. And the point of the article was to say that this will make it difficult to prosecute Russia for war crimes because Ukraine, in the words of the Washington Post, has essentially made everywhere a military target. That's what they said. So I... Um, and I'm not there to verify these claims either way. But when you have that level of mainstream uh, acknowledgement ac- across so many sources, to me, it's, it's it strikes me as pretty plausible. Uh, where, where can we find that thread? Is that in your Twitter somewhere? Is that, easy to think? <laughs> that article, I will post it in the show notes for this episode. But, um, but you mentioned a, a thread. Do you have the sort of an archive of, of those sort of oh, articles? Yes. And, and the thread I will I will add to. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Uh, and, and, you know, and I just agree with what you're saying, too. You know, again, when you look at what Russia's demands are, you know, I've never heard a demand that's like, oh, well, we demand all of Ukraine to be under our authority or, uh, you know, and obviously, I know you've talked about how the quote, the misquote about reconstituting the Soviet Union and that, that would be stupid to do that. Um, so, uh, yeah, again, it, it hasn't been something that uh, I, I can understand the confusion, and, and I appreciate you trying to put together the, the information to that as best you can. So that's thank you very much. Yeah, well, thanks. Um, and look, I found this article in the Post. This is um, by Sudarzan Raghavan, who's a, a Washington Post correspondent in Ukraine. And he um, he writes this. Increasingly, Ukrainians are confronting an uncomfortable truth the military's understandable impulse to defend against Russian attacks could be 
could be putting civilians in the crosshairs. Virtually every neighborhood in most cities has become militarized, some more than others, making them potential targets for Russian forces trying to take out Ukrainian defenses. So that's from the Washington Post, and I will, I will post this article in the show notes for this episode. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Stefan. Hey, Aaron. Can you hear me? Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. So following Serge's comments and uh, given your answer to Brian, I, I think I'm trying to get better tools for sifting through kind of the you know fog as it exists today. So one thing that I see kind of missing from the narrative told in the U.S. anyway are kind of like these cult-like factions that the State Department grooms for proxy wars and the longer-term effects that they have on the domestic population. Uh, enter allegations of Ukrainian war crimes, um, which are pretty much erased entirely from the coverage I hear in the States, at least. Specifically, I was hoping to borrow your lens on how you unpack allegations from Azov and Ukrainian forces uh, using human shields and capitalizing on civilian deaths for recruitment purposes. Um, I guess more specifically, like I was, um, I actually had a conversation with somebody I know in Ukraine um, over Mariupol uh, yeah. and the evacuation corridors. Uh, <laughs> the uh, evacuation corridors were uh, negotiated, presumably, and then mm -hmm. civilians are actually afraid to leave the combat zones uh, because both sides are literally telling them that the other side will kill them on site. Right. Uh, so how do you discern the truth behind, you know, civilian deaths without the forensics? And do you think that there will be a time when there's an international effort to exhume people and see if the mass graves are filled with, you know, NATO or Russian uh, style ballistics and armaments? Yeah, I, uh, I generally find that the truth comes out afterwards, that during the war itself, it's very difficult to find out. So it's, that's why I, I'm hesitant to weigh in either way. But what you say there about civilians being warned by both sides that the other will kill them, that that strikes me as totally plausible. And it strikes me as totally plausible that both sides commit atrocities. But it's very difficult in the moment to find out because especially for those of us who are not there. I mean, we just have, it's very, we have limited insight. What I will say is that in, the, in a place like Mariupol, you had this allegation of a bombing, of a Russian bombing of a theater. And the, that kind of like, to me, the evidence has not borne out for that yet. It could be true, but... There was an article about this at the Gray Zone by my colleague Max Blumenthal, which I'll post. And he went through the evidence as to why this could have been a false flag, that actually that Azov could have bombed it. And I'm not endorsing that view for sure, but I certainly am not ruling it out because the evidence that he marshaled, I thought, was certainly he made a very plausible case. Yeah, fair enough. Thanks. Yeah, I was just kind of curious, like how you sort through it in the interim before there's actual proof and evidence, right? Is you can you can maintain a suspension of disbelief, you know, on either side. Yeah. Um, but like what tools do you have to, you know, really investigate it? You know, are, are there specific sources you just know to follow or it, like, how do you do that? Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I follow the approach of just not making sweeping conclusions on cases that I haven't deeply investigated. And even if, and it's hard to know who to trust, you know, if Russian state media says something, can you trust it? No. I mean, you have to have an independent source and that's just very hard to find. So I think you have to just accept that in some cases, you're just not going to know what the real story is, at least for now. Got it. Thanks. Thanks. Stephen. Okay. Matthew. Uh, hi. Uh, hello. Hello. Aaron. Hi. Hi. Okay. Uh, two questions. Uh, it's very possible that this was a false flag event to allow for new intervention. In fact, 
it's kind of high. It's increasingly likely by the moment, and it's possible that uh, Zelensky, at the very least, gave his consent to this if he was if he was in the know about this. Mm-hmm. And uh, if so, he automatically loses points from a moral perspective. That being said, is it possible for there to going to be more false flags in the future as a possible like chemical weapons attack, which Biden has said stated to be the red line? Do I think it's po- I, absolutely, absolutely it's possible. I mean, the playbook has already been laid down in Syria and there's been so, you know, a lot of the same people or some of the same people who are in, been involved in promoting what I think were false chemical weapons allegations in Syria have been involved in Ukraine. There's a, a, some British characters who have been especially involved in this, who absolutely collaborated with insurgent groups in Syria and were instrumental in making allegations against the Syrian government that I think have turned out to be false. And there, these people have been active in Ukraine. And just the playbook of all of a sudden, the Biden administration starts warning about false flags by Russia right after this controversy with the biolabs comes up. It's just the timing to me is too, is too suspicious. And it's totally fair to, to speculate about this and that there being people inside NATO countries, not just the U.S., that want to preserve the option of a U.S. military intervention. And so accusing Russia of a chemical attack is the way to do that. But whether it actually happens, I have no idea. But certainly the playbook is there. Uh also, speaking of, I saw an article posted on Twitter that practically lobbied for NATO intervention under, under the idea that could start uh, that wouldn't start a nuclear war. Uh, the title uh, it's called NATO. It's it's foreignpolicy.com, and the title is NATO intervention in Ukraine won't spark World War Three. A Westerner version of the casualties and fears of Russian nuclear use. Our pending NATO intervention gets a vastly inferior opponent by Limor Stoney, a policy advisor and researcher based in London, which it could be the start of a disturbing trend within the media for normalization, normalization and normalization and of intervention and possibly use of nuclear weapons, yeah. a normalization of nuclear war, which is terrifying to think about. Uh, what are your thoughts on all this? Yeah, it is. It is terrifying. But of course, maybe they're right. Maybe if the U.S. and Russia got into a hot war, it wouldn't cause a nuclear war. Maybe they're right. But the point is, do you want to risk it? Is it worth no. risking? No, is it worth it risking? Not. I mean, no. I I could see situations in which it would be worth risking if, for example, we were dealing with Hitler or a Hitler-like figure. But this is what? A dispute over... Ukraine's theoretical right to join NATO and ending a civil war in the Donbass. I don't think it's worth risking a nuclear holocaust for. And my my concern is, as EMEA continues to uh, lobby for intervention, when it becomes a hot war, hopefully not, then they'll try to normalize the use of nuclear weapons similar to like the Protect and Survive program from the mm. 80s in which like UK did these like uh, PSAs on how to survive a nuclear war, which was practically useless. Of course, of course. No, it's madness. It's, it's total madness. And hopefully cooler heads will prevail. You know, on the uh, analog to Syria, one thing I'll say is under Obama, there were some level-headed, sober people who actually helped avoid the red line being being triggered where because after in August 2013 Syria was accused of this this uh, committing this 
attack that did happen. It, it wasn't a staged event. There was a real chemical attack with sarin rockets fired at civilians. In Ghouta, hundreds were killed. And Obama immediately accused Syria and was was basically preparing the public to bomb Syria. But what happened? Immediately, some officials in the Obama administration leaked to the media that the intelligence was, quote, not a slam dunk. And that they deliberately chose those words because they wanted to invoke the Iraq War, WND, so-called intelligence, in which George Tenet had claimed that the intelligence connect of Iraqi WMDs was a slam dunk. So some sane Obama officials leaked to the media in an obvious bid to stop a disastrous U.S. bombing of Syria on behalf of al-Qaeda, essentially. Um, and they helped prevent the war. Or they helped prevent the airstrikes. Are people like that left over under a Biden? I'm not sure. We, we've had a couple of leaks saying that from the U.S. side – and and they came from the Pentagon, which always in these situations is a lot more level-headed than than the political appointees in the White House and the State Department, saying that the evidence wasn't there. So hopefully there are more of these types that are still left that are able to – I, I think they are. I think they are personally. Personally, I think they are. Let's hope. Let's hope. Let's hope. Yeah. Matthew, thanks for the call. Thank you. Michael, you were up. And Michael, if you're there, you, got you have to – there you go. Yeah. Hi. Hey, how are you doing? First off, uh, hats off to you, man. Disrespectful way that people approach you. Uh, really frustrating uh, for somebody who wants to be, you know, who are you to like, you're the guy that's going to break, you know, out. So, um, well, hey, I, that's fine. Any Anyone is welcome, even if they have criticism. And in fact, I do think that debate makes uh, these things all the more lively. So I appreciate anybody with criticism and they're welcome. It's, it's totally fine. But, but I, but I appreciate your words too. So thank you. Yeah, no, I appreciate your wisdom. I'm learning a lot. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you that then I, you know, became a, uh, you know, additional donor to Katie Halper for, and I probably speak for a lot of people, the reality of elements in neighbor ask me in reference to the objective. And, and the reason that I, that I have some knowledge, it could fit in the symbol because of, and, um, what do you what do you think about how there there's no anti-war message coming from any corporate media outlet? Everything there's no updates on the box or analysis of what remains to be done so that a peaceful ceasefire can come about uh, more quickly. There's there's no you know big story about the ceasefire in Yemen, and and I'm just curious what you found to be the most efficient path to communicate. The, the reality of, of your experience and what you know. Wow. That's a tough question. Um, the media has always been pro-war and always manufactured consent and always severely constrained the space for dissent. But I do think that, you know, five plus years of Russiagate has made it even worse because it's completely normalized this culture in which to be a, you know, decent, uh, liberal, progressive person, you know, uh, then you have to basically worship Cold War dogma that Russia is this uh, nefarious enemy who seeks to destroy democracies all around the world and that we have to, the answer is to pour more money and weapons into our allies, our quote-unquote allies, which really in reality are just proxy clients. And we have to expand NATO. We have to worship the CIA and the FBI no matter how many times they get caught lying to us, no matter how many times they make incredibly ridiculous claims like Hunter Biden's laptop being 
Russian disinformation and the level of narrative obedience where, I mean, look how long it took for everyone to admit that, oh yeah, the whole Hunter laptop thing, that was actually real. It, it took uh, well over a year. And even now, many people who are the worst culprits aren't owning up to it. So it's difficult. Like we're living in a, essentially a, a, a Orwellian media system and it's very hard to pierce it. And the only way, like the, the counterway to it is just to, just to be unapologetic in speaking the truth. You, you know, people who dissent, there's like this, uh, and you know, all, with, with all the name calling we get and, you know, p- you know, in, in my case, people have accused me of being paid by Russia and working for foreign governments, all this crazy stuff. So, but it has an impact in making people a bit hesitant or timid and come and just speaking the truth. But the, I think the, the clearest path is just to be unapologetic and, and being truthful because that's what we're all here for is just to hear what the truth is. And if we get something wrong, then to make up for it. But when we're speaking from a place of what we believe in and we're grounded in the facts, then what's there to be apologetic about? But the society where the truth is so marginalized, it, it makes it, it makes it difficult. Uh, you've had to take some hell. I saw the, the stuff the young Turks did. I still can't, I don't get it. Uh, but I'm not. I'm sorry. I don't even want to give them, you know, airtime. When you said the the gloves haven't come off, um, I'm not putting words. When I say to the the grizzly bear has not taken off the gloves yet, what I mean is I haven't heard anything about the types of street crime, uh, biker gangs, paramilitaries outside of what the corporate media tells us about. You know, uh, the typical crimes that happen in every armed conflict you can look Srebrenica and the rape camps and when I say I'm not hearing events and they're not following the the Russian land they're not following the Russian doctrine of you know artillery three times per and land forces with an overwhelming uh, so your thoughts about well this is not my area of expertise but someone like Scott Ritter who was a former Marine Corps intelligence officer former chief UN weapons inspector he's talked about this that and he studied Russian military doctrine all his life because he grew up. Uh, he entered the Marine Corps when in the 1980s when the Soviet Union was our main enemy, and so he studied Russian military doctrine for a long time because he had to be prepared to fight them in a war. And he says that this war has not followed their playbook at all, where they have not used heavy artillery, uh, and they actually, in his view, went with a much lighter force. They actually went in with a, a smaller force than Ukraine has, which is not the normal playbook when you when you're an invader. You want to actually uh, have I don't know at least double the amount of forces as the, as the people you're invading. But I, but that's not what has happened here. So it's not you know I I have no insight on that front to offer beyond just deferring to those who I consider to be experts like like Scott Ritter. And the street crime aspects. I can't speak to that. I have not looked into that. So you're saying that. You're saying that there's been less street crime than would be expected in a normal invasion, or as a result of as a result of the invasion. I wouldn't go with normal, but yeah, I don't know. I just I just want to bring it up as as a as a something that always occurs, and um, maybe it's just maybe it's maybe it's better that it stays out of the limelight because it's all the very worst of the people. Uh, you know, I mean. When I say it always occurs, you could go to rape it non king. You could, but I haven't heard of any of those things. There's no, you know, the the uh, 
night wolf street gangs, their biker gang pictures online of guys and right. good, you know, good documentation that they did all that. Right. Well, hopefully that's the case that there haven't been these kind of, you know, atrocities that so often happens in, in wars like this, but who knows? I mean, they might've, it's possible we haven't heard of them. One thing I did hear of uh, from people in Kiev is that they were worried that initially in the early days of the invasion, when the Ukrainian government just let out prisoners uh, from prison and handed out guns, that that was going to lead to an increase in crime, that gangs were going to use the weapons they got to settle rival scores. And that was one concern that I heard early on. I don't, I didn't follow up with it, but that's another thing to, to think about is like what, you know, um, the, the impact of just basically fl- flooding the country with weapons and handing them out to anybody who wants them. That could pose dangers too. It makes no sense that you got Betty White getting K-47 and you know, it's yeah. going to be more dangerous to her with no training and no proper you know, knowledge of techniques, much less identify friendo. And then separate from that, you've got little kids 8 to 80 with grandma putting together Molotov cocktails. What good is going to, you know, from that sort of thing? Thanks, Michael. Thanks for the call. And it's tough. You know, that's a tough issue because people have the right to resist an invader. You know, no matter what you think about the background, they have the right to resist someone who's occupying their country, you know. But it's a question is what is prudent and what what is going to lead to the least amount of loss of life in an awful war. And I just think flooding Ukraine with weapons is not is not the answer. So thanks for the call, Michael. And Peter, you're up. And Peter, if you're there, there you go. Me? Yeah. Hi. Oh, hi. Well, thank you, Aaron, again. Uh, great answer to that uh, caller, AJ, I believe. And uh, you're such a classy kind of a, a, a journalist. And uh, this is very rare to find these days. And uh, oh, thanks. Uh, uh, thank you very much. Uh, I have a quick question, but I have an answer uh, for myself. But I have a question for you. Uh, as a, you know, I truly believe you are you're a great journalist. Uh, imagine yourself as a, like a David Haberstam or Neil Sheen uh, in in Saigon, one of the Saigon cafe, talking about the Vietnam War. And uh, I bet uh, those journalists will have a little uh, game, uh, a guessing game: how long the Vietnam War is going to last. Would it be by Christmas of a 1963, or it would be three more years, right? So my question to you, and probably to everyone, uh, is how long you think this uh, Ukraine war is going to last? Because it's kind of important in the sense that if it's going to last six more months, what the gas price will be when we exhaust all the strategic reserve? Uh, what if it lasts two to three years? Will hunger, food shortage become a pandemic in the global South countries, such as Africa and some of the Middle Eastern countries, right? So my, that's my question. Now, I'm going to give you my answer. Uh, I will say it's going to last three years. I've told the surge about this the other day. So today I'm going to give my uh, uh, reasons why I believe this Ukraine uh, war is going to last three years, using the Korea war as example. Korea war last three years. During the uh, at the Korea War, China warned the United States not to approach the Yalu River. That is the red line for China. Of course, General Douglas MacArthur disagreed with the president. He pushed ahead, and uh, China gave out two diplomatic warnings: do not approach Yalu River, otherwise China will send in troops. 
and the rest we know, it's a history. Putin wants the NATO not to approach the Russia's border. That's his red line, right? I'm not trying to praise Putin, but I'm just saying he is doing a strategic maneuver here. China visited Stalin before the Korea War, seeking support. Putin visited China before the Ukraine War. And China and Russia has agreed to have a cooperation with no boundary. So what I sense is that it will be very similar to what the Soviet Union, including Ukraine. I gotcha. 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 I got it. Ukraine supported China, right? Yeah. So China is not the enemy of Ukraine. China appreciates the both sides because the Korea War is a strategically important war for to China. I got it. I, I got it. Yeah. I want to say this: UN is by that UN actually the Korea War is in the name of United Nations. It's not just US. Back mm-hmm. then, the UN was supported by the US, and uh, China, now uh, Russia can be saying, you know, supported by not just China, maybe some other countries as well, like India. And nobody's going to back down in Korea War until the US public and the US decision makers get exhausted. They, while we are getting into this. So uh, this is why I believe. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that, and in the meantime, it's the people around the world who will suffer with higher prices. I'm already seeing that now in Europe. And I'm very worried. I'm very worried that I I, actually believe those uh, uh, those countries with uh, uh, Africa countries. I I do not know because I follow a lot of Chinese YouTubers doing mm -hmm. business or traveling in Africa, and Mm -hmm. I was shocked to see that Africa actually buy mostly of food from outside the countries. Yeah, and they from uh, uh, Russia and Ukraine. Yep. So these people is up for, you know, we're complaining about gas price. They're going to complain whether they have food on the table. Yes, and that's a very scary prospect. Peter, it thank is. you. Peter, thank you for the call. Thank you. Thank you. Sumana. Yeah, hi. Um, can you hear me? Yes. Yes, yeah, so, um, you know, uh, to a couple of questions by previous callers, you said that you know, you're mostly addressing U.S. policymakers, which is why you focus on U.S. foreign policy, which includes NATO expansion. But a lot of Ukrainian um, left activists and academics have written over the last few weeks, like Volodymyr Ishchenko, Volodymyr Artyuk, I think they both wrote in The Jacobin, and Taras Bulis and Taras Federico, saying, I mean, they've criticized a section of the left in the West uh, that, you know, is talking about NATO as the root cause. Uh, And the reason they say that is that that's not their experience. And and, and at a time like this, you know, what the Ukrainian subjective experience of history with the Soviets and Russian imperialism or expansionism uh, is a very important part of the story. And when you do, I mean, what you do is no longer restricted. What, you know, what you report or what your, your views are no longer just uh, um, available to an American audience. I mean, it's a global audience. And so they feel that it's kind of, uh, you know, it sort of uh, wipes the Ukrainians out of the picture and doesn't give them agency. And um, it would, 
I mean, okay. Let me say one thing. Let me say one thing. Let me say one thing. Russia security concerns. I mean, right. Samana, let me say one thing. And why should we be concerned about it's, you know, whether yeah. what Russia wants? I mean, what okay. does he really want? What does Putin really want? Okay. So those are the kind so, of questions. Yes. That I got him. They I got feel him. that the U.S. left should also be asking. Right. So on the first point about Ukrainians being erased, my problem with that is that the way Ukraine is discussed in the U.S., which unfortunately has a very influential role inside Ukraine, uh, is that the way Ukraine is discussed here completely erases the Ukrainians who feel as if they've been under siege since 2014 when the U.S. backed a coup. Because the U.S. basically policy has been predicated on denying the agency of those Ukrainians who want to be aligned with Russia. And the demands of Ukraine by the U.S. and the EU before the 2014 coup, which essentially would have cut off Ukraine's ties to Russia, that was unacceptable to those people who live mostly in the Donbass who want to maintain their ties to Russia because they speak Russian, they have family in Russia, they consider many of them consider themselves to be ethnically Russian. And the U.S. policy, to me, in my opinion, has been predicated on denying the agency of those people. And, you know, there's plenty of examples to illustrate it. Right after the coup in 2014, the Russian language was effectively banned inside of Ukraine. And you had events like the Odessa massacre, where protesters who were against the Maidan coup were burned alive. And it's those people, those Ukrainians, who I feel have no voice inside the West, the, the NATO world. And that's who I try to speak to, uh, uh, you know, I speak about as well because I feel as if they get ignored. And also because their rights point to a solution that in a country where you have such deep divisions, and I never deny that there are people who inside Ukraine who hate Russia, don't want anything to do with Russia, and just want to be completely inside the U.S.-NATO orbit. They totally exist. But my problem with that is that the U.S. policy, essentially, in my opinion, rests on only listening to those Ukrainians and denying the agency of all those who don't feel the same way. And in a situation where you have such a divided country, the obvious answer to me is neutrality. And that gets to your second question about what are, race, uh, what are Russia's demands. Russia is not demanding that Ukraine join uh, a uh, Russian-led military alliance or a Russian-led uh, trade customs union. That was back in 2014 when the coup happened. Russia was actually amenable to three-way talks, to having a, a basically a free trade zone between the Russia the EU, the EU and Ukraine. It was the it was the EU and Washington that said no to that. That basically wanted Ukraine to curtail its ties to Russia. So that's why I see the problem here is it's to me it's the it's actually the Western uh, bloc that is forcing Ukraine into the zero sum game. And I just think that's a recipe for disaster when you have such a divided country that's also physically on the border of Russia. You know, it's not on the border of the U.S. If if Ukraine was on the U.S. border, not the Russian border, then I think its policy might make more sense. But it's on Russia's borders. And so to say that then Russia has no legitimate concerns, given its historical ties to Ukraine and given the nature of NATO, I just, you know, that's not something that I can agree with. So I just have a follow-up. So this is a kind of, uh, I myself am not very sure about this, but why are we talking in terms of what states want? 
you know, like Russia, the Russia security concerns. You know, Vijay Prashad on Katie Halper's show was saying that, you know, they need Sebastopol because it's a warm war. I mean, it's their greed versus the US's greed. I mean, why are we not talking? Why are we talking in terms of geopolitics and states and not what the people want? I mean, I'm just talking about, I myself am not sure. But, but well, because, because, because states, be because, states are, because states exist and that's just a reality. I mean, many people would not want to have any states, and I, I'm sympathetic to that, but, but, the, but in the real world, they exist. And so, unfortunately, what they want has to be taken into account or else we just have, you know, or, or else then we can't get anything done. And, 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 only the, and, and in that situation, only the most powerful states will be able to ha- have, anything, uh, have anything accomplished. And look, if you want to know about what the people want inside Ukraine, again, it's a deeply divided country. Up until the coup in 2014, support for NATO membership was below 50%. And certainly in Crimea, which Russia seized in 2014 after the coup, you look at all the polls. I mean, forget the referendum that happened if you don't trust that referendum because it was done under Russian occupation. But if you look at polls, the vast majority of people there wanted to join Russia. So that's what the people there wanted. And the people in, in the Donbass wanted to be an independent state and wanted Russia to actually recognize that. But Russia up until this invasion, didn't want to do that because they actually wanted to respect the Minsk Accords, which could have helped avoid this war. So, you know, I, um, in terms of what people want, uh, it depends which people. And I'm certainly not going to listen just to those people whose interests happen to align with Washington's. I try to listen to everybody. And when you listen to everybody, you try to come up with the best solution that accommodates the most people and is the most just and the most fair and the most amenable to avoiding war. Right. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I see what you're saying. But the third, the, the, other, the other thing is when you're actually covering this war, I mean, a lot of the like left-wing and progressive, uh, you know, blogs and YouTube channels and everything, they don't have boots on the ground. It's the traditional conventional me- media that has all the reporters and all the people actually reporting from Ukraine. So how do you actually, I mean, as a journalist, how do you actually get, I mean, I think a few people have asked you this before, but, you know, to cite Moon of Alabama, what are their sources? What is the vetting process? You know, they don't seem to have the institutional mechanisms that, you know. That yeah, you're right. You're right. What's you're right. It's true. On the ground. It's true. But the problem is just because you have a lot of resources doesn't mean you're going to be accurate. The same outlets that have all the money in the world to send people to Ukraine are the same ones who lied to us about Iraq, who lied to us about Libya, who lied to us about Hunter Biden's laptop, who lied to us about Russiagate for five plus years. So they don't necessarily have credibility just because they have a lot of money and a lot of power. And But you're right. Look, and I've tried to say that during this call is that there's limited – I have a limited uh, insight into Ukraine because I'm not there. And so – there's certain things that I just can't weigh in on because I don't I don't have the I, I don't have the the perspective to determine what is true and what is not. What I can do is just weigh in to the best of my judgment and cite sources that I found to be credible based on their track record. And if I get anything wrong, to correct it. Thank you very much. Thanks for calling. Okay, Jake. And Jake, if you were there, 
there is a mute button in the bottom right. And if you're not there, we'll move on to Tim. Tim, I can't hear you. Can other people hear Tim? Okay, Tim, I'm for some reason I'm not hearing you, even though I see that you were unmuted. So let me just try to put in my headphones here and see if that helps. Yes, Tim. So unfortunately, I'm not hearing you. So I'm going to try another caller and I will ask you to come back into the queue and we will see if uh, what the problem was. But I will try for someone else for now. Hi there. Hi. Hi. Uh, yeah, my name is Bogdan. Uh, just for the context, I'm kind of more on the critical side of, of your views, but uh, I try to keep it short. Uh, and just for the background, uh, you know, I'm originally from Ukraine. Uh, my family members are there, so I'm around Chernigiv uh, region. So um, I think uh, there are, it's definitely true that, you know, like the Russians are uh, shooting like civilian uh, targets in, inside Chernigiv. Um, just, you know, like from the uh, personal reports I know. Uh, but uh, um, apart from that, I think the question I have for you, so you like saying that you're against if, um supplying more uh, arms to uh, Ukraine, uh, I guess, like, was was the thinking that uh, there's a high chance of uh, signing the uh, peace agreement. Is that correct? That it, it, well, it no, I, I, I'm against arming Ukraine for many reasons, including that I just think Russia has escalatory dominance no matter what the U.S. does. So pouring more weapons in, to me just strikes me as a recipe for disaster and just to prolong the war. Because no matter what is given to Ukraine, I think Russia will always have superior military force that it can use. Okay, well, I disagree that it will prolong. But okay, I mean, this is more like a military tactical, I guess, uh, situation. But let's say uh, we, we go with, with what you are suggesting, right? And uh, uh, let's say, you know, uh, Russian uh, troops you know, capture more cities, right? Like, how uh, and I, what I'm trying to, I guess you, you probably agree that what we're trying to optimize is to preserve the lives and you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, the well-being of people in Ukraine. If if that's the if that's our goal, uh, I I just don't see uh, how uh, you know losing Ukrainian forces, losing the war, and Russia capturing more cities and basically uh, proclaiming uh, sort of those uh, being a Russian territory how that saves lives. Uh, well, so, so, so let me ask you, do you think that, what do you think Russia's goal is inside Ukraine? To me, Russia's goal is enforcing the terms that it, it had asked for before the war, which is basically Ukrainian neutrality, not joining NATO, right. and, and ending the war in the Donbass. So implementing the Minsk Accords. Yeah, like, I, I, that, yeah. that, that to me is Russia's main goal in terms of its what outcome it wants to achieve. Do you agree with that? Do you, what do you think Russia's aim is? Yeah, I think uh, from what I'm reading, and you know, I'm not like a professional politician or anything, but from what I'm reading, uh, the stakes are higher. I think that will be actually uh, neutrality and the Donbass and the Crimea. I think uh, that will be actually uh, considered a loss inside in the eyes of the, let's say, Russian uh, uh, people who pro war, right? Uh, that's that's my opinion uh, from sort of sources that I read. So I think. Not supplying the weapons, basically, let, let's, like, as an example, right? Let's say that, let's take the city of uh, um, Kherson, right? So Russia controls that city right now. Uh, like, what will happen to that city? 
in case of the peace agreement, right? I would I would imagine that uh, uh, Russian side will say, well, okay, we control it, you know, uh, like we just we we would would prefer to have it. So you know, like I, I think that's that's the thing. In my opinion, is the the main uh, um, difficulty right now. Uh, I think the neutrality is uh, you know, and of course there are like sort of people who are pushing for escalation on both sides, right? But like, uh, realistically, I think the problem is actually uh, that Donbass premier and uh, uh, neutrality is not enough. Uh, that's that's how I see it. And uh, not giving more weapons basically means that, uh, you know, uh, as, as an example, the Kherson, right? Like how would, would, in your opinion, right? Let's, say, let's take that city as just kind of a, so we can talk about some concrete things. Like, will you think that Russians just move out of there? Or will you think they will, they will hold it? And like, what is the what is the way to decide the destiny of that? Uh, um, I have no idea. I have I have no idea. I I have not listened to what Russian officials have said about uh, that to be able to gauge. I do think they definitely want to be. It's obvious that they want Crimea recognized as part of Russia. I mean, they've said that, and it strikes me also that that they want to keep Mariupol because Mariupol is basically part of the Donbass, as I understand it. And it was used as a, um, as a key strategic uh, site to attack the rebel-held areas of the Donbass. So it strikes me that Mariupol is what Russia wants as well. But as for other places, I don't know. Uh, that's, um, I don't well, have... I think, yeah. I think that's, though, the somewhat of a problem of saying, you know, let's not uh, arm Ukraine because it's actually, there is a, high chance that that will actually prolong the war unfortunately i mean i i, I you know um and uh, you can you can optimize i guess for different sort of uh, objectives right like i'm not talking about like uh, geopolitical u.s interests or other interests right but just like right now for example you know the negotiations are going on right uh, like uh we are trying to estimate uh, like you know what will happen what are the uh, you know re- realistic demands and uh, you know how how actually this agreement will be uh, implemented because I think that that's actually quite important. Like even for example, just to from a perspective of like let's say given Donbass, right? Okay, how is that given is going to happen? I mean, basically, uh, uh, from my understanding, there needs to be a change in the Ukraine constitution. So is Zelensky? Uh, you know, he he doesn't have a power to do it. Uh, I think Parliament has, but uh, you know, I think. Uh, there, you know, might you know, I, I think the referendum is the, probably a better way, but you can't tell the referendum right now, right? Yeah. What's, your, what's your sort of take on that? Yeah, it, it is hard to have a referendum when you're under occupation. It's it's impossible, and right. um, but uh, so that will have to be arranged. But again, the alternative is what? Just more war. And if if you're saying that basically Ukraine getting more weapons might put it into a better negotiating position, I mean, maybe you're right. And certainly, again, you know, Ukraine has the right to get weapons and to fight back. I just don't think, given the military situation, that it will do anything but just kill more people and lead to more unnecessary loss of life, especially when the the solution seems so obvious to me and it doesn't seem like what's worth destroying a country for, which is basically Ukrainian neutrality and ending the war in the Donbass. Those, I, I wish Russia hadn't gone about it this way. But that outcome, to me, strikes me as not um, unrealistic and not unreasonable. That you know, Russia has 
concerns about NATO expansion and has concerns about this war that I, I think you can fairly say the Ukrainian government was not willing to end, which is the war in the Donbass. And so there, yeah, has to be, think, there has to be a way to end it. To be honest, like the Donbass, uh, you know, I think that, that requires like a longer discussion. Uh, you know, you can go read the Wikipedia page. It has like, you know, uh, details, uh, you know. So uh, I think ending the war in Donbass that is basically fought by, you know, literally Russian uh, uh, troops and uh, citizens who came in from Russia, right? I mean, there, there are a lot of uh, uh, nuances there, right? Uh, I don't well, there are, there are. There are, but where I would disagree with you is, yes, Russian forces have come in. Yes, Russian forces are backing up the rebels. But I do think this is a local insurgency, that those people there are actually indigenous I, to the region. And they, and they have, and they certainly received Russian help. But their concerns are real. They are a part of Ukraine. And they felt strongly enough against the Ukrainian government in 2014, after the coup, to rise up. And... I, I, yeah, I and mean, things I like and, and massacres like the the like which I mentioned before the the Odessa massacre, uh, this massacre of uh, Russian speakers who were protesting the coup who were burned alive. Events like that happened, and they have consequences, and they have made people in the Donbass feel as if they're under attack, and as if they want their own region because the government in Kiev they feel will not respect them, and that's why Zelensky to me is such a tragedy, is because he was elected on a mandate that everybody could get behind. Every, everybody was excited that he was going to actually bring peace, and he hasn't. And now Listen, instead we're uh, in this situation. I think you, like, you, you know, you're missing a lot of key aspects of this uh, since, and like, I, I'm not going to, you know, I, I'm not sure there's time right now to really discuss the Donbass. I mean, this can be, like, as I said, just an hour-long discussion. But one point that I want to say uh, for your argument, right? So look at people who actually left Donbass, right, and who went to Kiev. You know, I... I, I have people on the ground. There, like, there was a huge wave of uh, people who uh, moved away from Donbass uh, and to other parts of Ukraine. Right now, like, you can find stories right now, right, that people who left Donbass are getting bombed again uh, by Russians in like Kharkiv, and they say like, you know, this is the second time we like getting destroyed by Russian rights. And they were like literally from Donetsk, right? And like, I, I don't doubt you know, that at all. I, I don't doubt that at all. I, I, and, and I've heard similar stories from people that I know. So, right. so I, you know, I, it's, yeah. it's, as I said, you know, like, uh, how, how this war, you know, is, is, is it, you know, because the Russian citizens, it's also confirmed that Russian citizens and Russian troops are fighting, uh, and we're fighting in that war, right? Pretty heavily. So it's not just arms that, you know, it's not like just Russia just, you know, uh, supplied, uh, arms to to those people so they can you know uh, resist if they feel like it right no I think the problem was that literally Russian regular troops uh, you know were fighting the war I mean okay I well you know what we'll 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 disagree but, on the extent yeah, of Russian okay. involvement because, so because let's, yes let's, I think I think Russia was was involved but I, I think that their involvement has been overplayed and the extent to which it was a local indigenous force I think has been has okay, been played down the, you know I mean I can send you, uh, like, you know, okay, let, let's not go there. But I'm more actually curious about your take on the, you know, to end the current war, the peace process. I think also you're a little bit uh, uh, underestimating the demands of of, uh, uh, of Russia right now. And I just don't think that uh, uh, it's a question of uh, neutrality uh, in some form. Uh, again, the, the question of neutrality is also interesting because, who will be the guarantee, you know, is the, uh, other states will say, well, okay, 
Ukraine is neutral, so what happens if Russia attacks again? Will there be like a security guarantee? Like, will Ukraine uh, just give up on the army? You know, like those are important, I think, details. Uh, but uh, I, I just think that the just giving up Donbass, as you said, and neutrality and Crimea, that's not what it demands. So I think I would I would I would urge you to uh, like check the uh, you know monitor the demands and the the, uh, the process that is going on in the negotiation. I got you. Totally fair. Right. I, I I was speaking to what I think was the broad solution, but I, I totally. Um, certainly, the actual details will be a lot more complicated than than the broad outlines. To me, the core issues were neutrality and ending the war in the Donbass. And if you're right that there's that Russia will be asking for way more than that, then I'll, I'll happily correct myself. Okay, thank you. Thanks for the call, J- Jeff. You're up. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Hi, Jeff. Hi. Uh, yes, I know there was some confusion about the pronunciation of this place, Butcher, and. In Ukraine, um, I was, it actually made me think of Camp Bucha, which was a U.S. military base in Iraq where sort of all the leaders of these, you know, uh, ISIS graduated. So um, strange sort of coincidence of names there. Um, I just wanted to say two things, if that's OK. Um, one of them is I'm a big, um, you know, fan of Scott Ritter, who you mentioned earlier. I think he, you know, has an awful lot of uh, knowledge and uh, interesting things to say. I only have one reservation, though, and that is something that he tweeted out uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, and what, it, what he said was this, an unpopular take, when the dust settles, Russia will be found to have conducted a military campaign where assiduous compliance with the laws of war was the norm. Ukraine, on the other hand, will be the subject of numerous war crimes investigations. I think that's going a little over the top, isn't it? Yes, yeah, Scott has uh, strong opinions when it comes to the Russian military, and he sees them as very professional and as very actually committed to following the laws of war. It does strike me as over the top as well, but I will see, I guess. I mean, it, it, that tweet sounds like he was talking about in the future and, yeah, when, the inve- yeah. and, when, the invest- and when the investigations are done, so we'll see. Okay, um, another point was... Um I think it's probably correct that Russia isn't using, you know, the vast majority of its military might in the war in Ukraine. But I suppose we have to admit that um, neither does Israel when it bombs Gaza. I mean, it's got to be the case that Israel could easily just, you know, destroy the Gaza Strip. Um, And I suppose, you know, defenders of Israel make the case that it's holding back, it's not using, you know... All, all the weapons that it could. So, well, I... Sorry, you go ahead. Well, yeah, but my problem there is I don't accept the analogy. I mean, Israel's bombing a civilian population that it's been occupying for decades and has refused to cease occupying despite multiple opportunities that it does so. In the case of Russia, yes, it has illegally invaded and they are occupiers. But it's a, it's a different situation because there has been a war going on there for eight years and uh, a lot of people have died. And Russia, I think, is coming up with a self-defense doctrine that I don't accept. I don't think this you, you can justify this war on legal grounds, but I don't think it's comparable to Gaza, which is just occupying a, a besieged and defenseless population. No, no, I agree. It's just a talking point you sometimes hear. 
Um, one last thing, if I may, and this is um, going to sound really controversial, and I, I don't mean to be insulting, but it, it, there's been a lot of talk tonight about, uh, I know the caller called in saying that, you know, we're um, denying Ukrainian agency where, as you pointed out, the population is actually quite split when it comes to Russia. But it reminded me of something that Noam Chomsky said shortly after the close of the Cold War. And that was that, uh, in his view, a lot of Eastern European dissidents ended up with what he called a sort of funny view of the world. Because whereas Latin Americans were used to the U.S. as, you know, backing right-wing military regimes in their countries, and the same across Africa and the Middle East and Indonesia and countries like this, um, you had uh, many uh, East European dissidents under communism claiming that the U.S. was like this big defender of liberty and freedom. And it's true that the U.S. Um, was on their side against Russia's sort of local imperialism in Europe. Mm-hmm. But the USA has a sort of global imperialism, you know? Yeah. I don't yeah. mean to be insulting to people of East European background. No, it's fair. Think- no, no. But it's not, I don't think it's insulting. It's, I think it's totally fair given the experience of living under the Soviet Union. Yeah, why yeah. people in Eastern Europe would be, you know, uh, hostile toward toward Russia and willing to take the side of anybody who Russia is fighting. It, it makes sense. I mean, my father's side of my family uh, fled Soviet occupation in 1956. And, they, they you know, my my uh, father and my uncle had to pledge allegiance to, so, to, to Stalin in school and sing his praises. And it was it was awful. So yeah. I get yeah. it. It's inevitable. It's inevitable in a way, isn't it? I mean, I I also, I don't want to say I sympathize, but I understand that they had, you know, disputes with Russia, you know, before when it was the Russian Empire, you know, before the Soviet Union. And um, I do understand that the people who were their sort of national liberation heroes, like Stepan Bandera and people like that, they turned out, you know, they they sort of uh, uh, collaborated with the Nazis and... You know, that's very unfortunate. Uh, but I understand that, you know, that's probably what, well, you know what I mean? It's, it's very uh, unfortunate that, that they collaborated the way they did. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we view them as Nazis. I mean, there's, there's no two kinds of Nazi either. Bandera was a Nazi collaborator. He was. There's just no, there's no ambiguity about that. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and yeah. And that's and I just and so when he's when he when he when he's venerated today as a hero, I just you know that to me is just not acceptable. But anyway, no. that's a whole that's a whole other conversation. Jeff, thanks for the call. Thank you, yeah. And Amit, you are up. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. All right. Um uh one question and a couple of points. Firstly, um, a couple of days ago, there was some uh, news that Russian soldiers have been rushed out of the Chernobyl area um, because they've been exposed to radiation and they've been sent to Belarus hospitals or some other hospital. Um, Not sure how true that is. Just wondering if uh, you've heard anything about it or if that's also kind of a fake news as we are hearing from uh, Bucha area now. Fake news as in uh, blaming the Russians for uh, people that are killed there and hands tied back with a white piece of cloth. Yeah, I have not heard that, so I can't speak to it. Okay. Um, the next one that I wanted to say, a couple of actually points or 
uh, things that I've gathered based on what I've heard and or learned in the last couple of weeks and months and years. First of all, um, I'd like to encourage everyone to Google and read the Wikipedia link on NSSM 200, um, basically the document created by Henry Kissinger. And if you want to get an idea on what the broad agenda of the United States foreign policy is, um, it gives a premise on what the U.S. policy, uh, why the U.S. policy led the world to look at the U.S. as a bully of the world. Um, then um, the next one I want to say is the, the biggest losers in this conflict, like most people, I'm not sure, some people, um, Sumana, I think, in, uh, should really understand is the biggest losers in this conflict are the Ukrainian people and the American taxpayers because uh, we are going to suffer the food shortages, the fuel price hikes and everything, but we are paying for a proxy war. Um, I totally agree. Yeah. I totally agree. And uh, the people calling uh, contrary, contrarian view on the conflict and um, absorbing whatever the media and the popular journalists uh, you know, uh, tweet should learn that the same outlets and the journalists who convinced the regime changes in Iraq, Syria, Libya, Iran, sorry, and now in Iran, and uh, Libya, and even in North Korea, even and, and Russia now, are the ones that uh, are call, calling for regime change in Russia. And we know how all those countries have uh, turned into, uh, with real, no real success. Uh, of peace or democracy and you know I, I think the common American people have been brainwashed that you know different parts of the world have different cultures and things work in a certain in a very different way than how the American people have been taught to uh, look at the rest of the world you know, um, dictatorships or whatever we may call those things work in certain cultures, like in the Middle East. They, they, they lived, they survived, they thrived until the Western intervention um, in the name of democracy. Right. Um, and then recently, India got, a, got some backlash for staying neutral in this conflict. And um, people should know that, uh, that in 1971, when India and Pakistan were war was going on, the U.S. took the Pakistani side and planned on hitting New, New Delhi, the capital of India, from Indian Ocean, while India was busy fighting uh, the war on both sides, the, which is at that time was called East Pakistan, which is currently a Bangladesh, and on the Pakistani side. Um, and it was the Russians uh, that brought their submarines and uh, to support India and basically plotted the the U.S. attack on New Delhi. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, built-in loyalty or you know, right. trust and collaboration that India has for decades. Yes, I mean, you know, I'd love to actually talk more about this talk about this topic in the future because India's response to all this has been very fascinating to me, and we're not going to have the time today. And I want to get to other callers, but thank you for thanks thanks for weighing in for sharing with us that that, that was really insightful. So thank you. Sure. And one last point is. Embargoes and sanctions do not really have any impact on most countries. And you, you, we've seen Cuba for decades, Venezuela, you know, North Korea, and even Russia for several years. Right. Uh, yeah, they've, they've been 
under severe sanctions for decades, and it did not. It did nothing but develop more hatred for. Absolutely, and if if Cuba and Venezuela and Iran can survive U.S. sanctions, then Russia certainly can too. Yes. yes. Yeah. And most yeah. common people, even in Europe, don't like America, and the average Americans seem to think Europeans are obliged to be grateful for American benevolence. Uh, that's the sad part. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, thanks so much for the call. Thank you for the call, Daniel. And then we're going to wind down because. I have to go in 10 minutes, so we'll only have time for hopefully a few more callers. Okay. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Yeah. Um, Daniel, I live in San Antonio, Texas, and I wanted to bring out my point of view of the effects of this war having on the United States. I'm apathetic to the high gas prices when people complain about them. Simply because, one, I don't own the car, but for the past 10 years of my life, I've been a big advocate for public transit and protected bike lanes. And here's the thing. I heard some of your listeners saying, oh, Putin's bad and stuff like this. And, well, if we don't make peace with Putin soon, maybe within a month or so, um... What's going to happen here in the United States is that you're going to start seeing bigger and bigger protests because the gas prices are not going to go down that fast and far enough because now you all have all these other consumers in the world. And when you try to go use your public transit service, if you happen to be in a place where there's semi-decent public transit service, I'm on a city bus right now, um, you're going to find out how it's limited, how the service is slow. And for all those who are thinking, well, we should protect Ukraine, we should hand out Ukraine. Uh, no, because uh, the way I see this war is, is no different than the war in Iraq. This is a, a way to topple a, uh, a leader, a country that happened as rich in natural resources. And if we don't make peace with Russia, uh, enjoy walking a lot. <laughs> That's all I can say. Daniel, thanks for the call. And thanks for and, the for Yeah. And keep up the good work, Aaron Matate. I love your work. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks. And from Daniel to Dan. And Dan, if you were there, there's a microphone button in the bottom right to unmute yourself. And if not, we'll go on to Rudy. Hello, can you hear me now? Oh, sorry, Dan, I cut you off. So come back in the queue and I'll let you back in after after Rudy. Go ahead, Rudy, if you're there. Hey, Aaron, how you doing? Good, good. Hey, man, so I was just wondering, what's the use of the progressives in the United States if <laughs> when we're talking about a possible World War III scenario, we can't hear, I haven't heard anything, like, of, even of substance. Like, what's the position of the progressive left in the United States? It's, we yeah. haven't heard anything from AOC, Bernie yeah. Sanders, and then I, what's the listen, I totally, I completely agree. I blame Russiagate, where Russiagate normalized this situation where to be on the progressive left, you can't say anything critical 
of U.S. policy towards Russia, and you have to encourage confrontation towards Russia. You have to worship the CIA and worship NATO. And that's you're seeing now the impact with the silence of the squad and Bernie. And Bernie occasionally will say, you know, we don't want to spend more money on a new Cold War. But yet he'll still rhetorically prop up all the talking points that are being used to wage this Cold War. So the progressive left has been completely neutralized on this topic. And I think that speaks to why they're now politically so ineffective is because you know, they're totally ceding this to the right. There are Congress members, in, uh, you know, in, from the Republican Party who are much more principled and forceful and, they're, and clear in their opposition to this war. Thomas Massey, who is a libertarian Republican, uh, even Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, who, right. said, who has said QAnon stuff. Right. There's a whole uh, highway that the left is leaving to the Republicans. To totally seeing like it. Totally seeing it. Yeah. And oh so honestly, they, they they deserve they deserve the the route that is coming to them in the November midterm elections because they've been just totally useless on, on such a critical issue, and that totally impacts you know not just war and peace but their own constituents Ooh, because it's working right. people who are being asked to shoulder the burden for these insane policies abroad when it comes to Ukraine and Russia. So it's, it's, it's been pathetic. And um, I used to think that maybe it was why it was prudent for Bernie to be silent about Russiagate because oh my goodness. If, if he said something, then maybe, you know, it would be used against him. But really he catered to a wing of the party that was dedicated to, to destroying him. And so they all deserve whatever criticism they get because it's been so unfortunate. Can I can I just say one last thing, Aaron? Yeah. So I think if for the people that are saying why aren't you harping on the why Russians are bad, this is exactly why it is because in the United States, as soon as you say yes, Russia, they then the media will not allow you to continue. Bernie Sanders, as soon as he's before he says anything, he says Venezuela is bad. By the time he's able to say anything else, well, they've cut him off. And thus, they just want you to just say why we should attack this country. And then they don't want to hear the nuance after that. So it's a very fine line that somebody in your situation has to walk. Because to say that, okay, like Putin isn't an angel, you know, it, it's, it's to leave these people a big lane to then just say, okay, let's attack these people. You know, and the last point is also to back up what you were saying about the fact that Russia isn't going completely, you know, crazy on this war like we did in the um, against Iraq, we blitz um, Baghdad, we destroyed so much. Um, your your guy at Tia, uh, the Real News Network had posted an article saying basically that we should be supporting the Pentagon in this war in Biden's office, where the Pentagon is the one releasing information saying. Hey, actually, the the you know the Russians aren't aiming for uh, civilians; that they're actually trying to you know put in a uh, squeeze enough, but like leave a, um, a way for them to be able to come back. And, and the media is feeding the fires of war, and it's the warmongers, the Pentagon, that's saying, "No, let's chill out." It's it's crazy. It's totally it's it's the people who actually will have to wage a war who are in in this war, in this conflict being the voices of reason, and it's people in the media and in the state department and in the white house who are being reckless. And I, I, I totally share so much, so much of what you said there. So thanks for the call already. I appreciate it. Yeah. You guys take care, man. Take care. All right. And Dan, 
who was in before. I will bump up, and this will be the last caller. No. Yes. Hi, Dan. Yeah. Let me sit everybody. Let me sit everybody who I didn't get to today. I will be back tomorrow on here at 11 a.m. Eastern time with Katie Halper, and hope you can join us then. And I'll also be, of course, be back here next week on Sunday to do this again. So if you didn't get to you today, I apologize, and I hope you'll call in again the next time. So go ahead, Dan. Right. Uh, three small issues, if I can. It won't take long. Uh, one, your show with Katie Halper. It still shows the cartoon, the logo of it, it still shows uh, Katie and Matt Taibbi. How do you feel about that? It's not a good I, I feel okay. <laughs> I appreciate your concern, but I feel totally okay with that. It's it's their okay, show. Cool. It's their show. I'm just, I'm just filling in while Matt's writing a book. So yeah, but you'll so, be there for a while, apparently. So I was just wondering. It's not like a gotcha question, like I said. Just I want to start like I got you. I got you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, second, I heard your argument earlier about uh, the West. You know what I mean when I say the West, yeah? Uh, Arming Ukraine. Uh Um, So I'm a bit torn because I can understand your argument. Of course, the more weapons that go into Ukraine, the more, let's say, the the war will be prolonged, yeah? That's kind of an obvious consequence of having weapons in order for them to fight and defend themselves. Okay, people say we shouldn't do that because it just prolongs the war and more people will die. But then I don't know if it's up to us to make that decision. We can have our feelings about it, but if the Ukrainian people want to have those weapons, it's their choice to fight or not. I'm not saying I disagree with you from a moral point of view. Yes, because that means more people will die. But, if but wait a second, wait a second. Day, but, but wait a second. First of all, two things. First of all, it is our choice because we're the ones sending the weapons. So we don't have to send weapons to anybody who asks. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that. I'm not arguing that. Yeah. I'm arguing that if they want those weapons, yeah, they are taking it upon themselves if they want to fight or not. They are. That's true. But but, uh, that's true. But we aren't. So the fact fact that it's it's up to us to decide if we want to send them or not. I know. I know. I know. I know. But Uh, the fact that it's going to lead to more. One point. Yep. One point, Dan. Yeah. I haven't seen a vote inside Ukraine as to whether or not they want to be flooded with U.S. weapons. What I do know is that it's a divided country where there's a lot of people who are being bombed with U.S. weapons uh, in the Donbass. So in terms of yep. even who is Ukrainian, it's I mean, it, it depends who we're talking about. We're talking about only the ones who whose side we want to support or who the U.S. has been supporting or all Ukrainians. And on that front, it's been a very divided country. And. Yeah. All the polls have shown this for a very long time, just what a deeply divided country it is. And I, I know if, if you were to I poll know. most Ukrainians, if you, were to, if you were to poll most Ukrainians, do you want to be flooded with U.S. weapons to fight a proxy war for theoretical NATO membership? I, I'm not confident you would have a majority saying yes. Maybe you would, but I, I certainly wouldn't say that, 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 that I wouldn't say that that's guaranteed. Yeah. OK, so when you when you put it like that, I completely agree. So, like I said, I don't, I don't disagree with you in, in the, in the bigger picture. But when, if you put it like, when you send weapons, more people will die. That's what I have a bit of a. I don't know how to call it. Like, it's well, I think it's objectively... if, if they want to keep, if, if they want to keep fighting, it's up to them. It's up to it us is up to send them. the weapons. Yes. Yeah, it is up to them. But again, who is them? You have to be careful about not just imbuing a select group of Ukrainians who the U.S. media 
puts on air all the time as representing all Ukrainians. I don't know. Yeah, if but that's, Ukrainians... a, that's a fairer point to make. So I agree with it. And I think it's a, it's a better point to make than to make the point, oh, more people will be killed because eventually they are defending their country if they are. And I think I'm not sure. I didn't look at percentages. I don't know what the majority of the Ukrainian people think. If the majority of them think that they want to fight Russia, and then you look at the minority in Donbass, it's still a majority of people. So it's a very fine, it's a very complex situation. That's what I'm saying. Right, but then you get into the thing was, look, but again, even if if a majority did say we want to be flooded with weapons and fight Russia, that doesn't still obligate us to arm them, especially given what the cause is, you know? Yeah, of course not. Yeah, you yeah. Know. I, now, I can, I, now, but that doesn't I, mean, I but that doesn't mean we don't accept their right to self-defense. Obviously, they have every right to defend themselves from an invaded country. They do, but yes, whether or I not agree. we want to arm it is a totally separate question. And I just, what I don't like is just how you, the way Ukraine is portrayed in in NATO country uh, state media. Uh, it's like the Ukrainians who don't want to be used as cannon fodder don't exist. And on TV, it's only people who just want to be used in a proxy war. And I just don't think that represents all Ukrainians. Especially now with so many outlets being banned. Yes, exactly yes. right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Inside Ukraine, agree, inside, yeah. Ukraine, inside Ukraine, yeah. those outlets that have a different point of view, they've been banned by Zelensky. <laughs> so, yeah, of course. So, so yeah. that's why if you look at media now, yeah. I not necessarily mean Twitter. You look at any kind of news outlet, Yeah, you will mostly see one point of view because there's just one point of view that's coming out of ukraine which is like the ukrainian side so yeah we completely agree on that right so some other thing that i wanted to mention is it okay if i quickly read to you uh the uh, uh, a bit of an article i just came across a couple of hours ago dan unfortunately we're gonna have to end it with you and i agreeing on the last point because i i've run way over time it was about it, it just was about prices going up for example in germany food prices Yes. So I wanted to make a quick question. Do you agree that if this carries on for long enough, there will be protests, especially in Europe, for example, Italy, Spain, Germany now, or other countries in Europe where the prices are going up so much for food, electricity or gas that there will start to be protests in the street? So do you think the Russians are actually thinking of that and maybe waiting? That would not, that it would not surprise me at all if Russia had cal- has calculated into its strategy that that the food prices as a result of NATO governments blockading Russia will give give Russia some leverage that would not surprise me at all if if that that is factored into their thinking yes okay so did you think about this as a possibility have you ever considered it yeah absolutely sure right okay I was just wondering what were your views because I was thinking about this a while ago and I was like you see starting like protests for example, I saw something in Germany earlier today. You see protests in Italy yeah. or uh, about NATO expansion, uh, NATO the way, the, uh, money. The way Russia is acting, the, the way Russia is acting, it certainly looks like they've gamed this out and that this is factored into their playbook and their strategy, that they can count on you know unrest happening to put pressure on governments like on Germany. Western governments, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, so with that, Dan, we're going to have to end it there. Thanks everybody who called in today and who listened. I really, it's so gratifying and exciting to see this great response and everybody turning out. So thank you for spending some time with me. Hope you'll join me again tomorrow. I'll be here with Katie Helper at 11 o'clock in the morning, Eastern time and back next Sunday 
with AM Live and maybe someday in between as well, if news so requires. And yeah, thanks for tuning in. Have a great rest of your day. Bye.